be seated. Good morning. Man, this, this is great. This is phenomenal. Can you hear me? We good? Charles, am I on? We're good? Okay. It is great to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. I want to start this morning with a prayer because we have been praying, at least I have, and I'm sure you have as well, that this day would come, that we would get to be back together, that we would have our normal schedule, and that we could go forward, hopefully, hopefully putting COVID in the rearview mirror. So would you pray with me, please? Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can be together. We pray for those that are still struggling with COVID, those who are still more vulnerable, who can't be here with us, but wish that they could be. And we pray, God, uh, for health and safety going forward. We pray that we can keep moving ahead, that uh, we can put COVID in the past and get back to some sense of normalcy going forward. Thank you so much, God, for this day and for this opportunity. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You know, if you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we are in a series called The Reborn Identity. And we're looking at the various re-words in the Bible. Reward, rejoice, repentance. And this morning, conveniently, we're looking at resurrection or resurrection. So thank you for being here. You know, in 2011... Co-founder of Apple and CEO Steve Jobs was contemplating the afterlife in light of his diagnosis of cancer. And here's what he had to say. He said, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. I like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate this experience and maybe a little wisdom and it just goes away. So I want to believe that something survives, that maybe your conscience endures. Now, after a long pause, after a long delay, Steve Jobs continued. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. Then Jobs paused again and stated, maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. So, which one is it? Is there a part of us that lives on? Or do we have this kill switch that God just flips and we cease to exist? Where do we go when we die? It's a question that has been contemplated for centuries. It has been the subject of many studies and blogs and books and preaching. And you know, every religion has an answer to that question. Where do we go when we die? And if you've been to a few funerals like I have, then you know that there's a lot of pontificating that goes on from the pulpit about where people go when they die. And much of it leaves you walking away going, okay, so where is that in the Bible? But still, in the absence of information, we fill in the gaps. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible just doesn't have a lot to say about where we go when we die. We think it does, but it really doesn't. The emphasis is not on where we go when we die. The biblical emphasis is on resurrection. Now, the go-to passage is Luke chapter 16, right? When we talk about where you go when you die, we always look to Luke chapter 16 and the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And so we think, well, that gives us all the insight we need into where somebody goes when they die. But I'm not so sure. I mean, first of all, is that a parable or is it a story? Some people would say, well, it has to be a story because 
in Jesus' parables, he didn't really give proper names, and he gives a proper name to someone, which I get it. But at the same time, this would be unique if Jesus was telling a story and giving insight into where a person goes when they die, because he didn't do that either. Typically, Jesus spoke in metaphors and parables. And so my point is that whether this is a parable or not, it's unique either way. A proper name is given to one of the characters. It does read like one of Jesus' other parables, though. And, and he's making some key points that I think sometimes get lost because we only focus on the aspect of the afterlife. And some of the key points he's making is that this rich man forfeited the opportunity to show charity while on earth. This rich man had to step over Lazarus every day. This poor man that would just been happy with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And yet, the rich man stepped over him, avoided him each and every day until both of them die, right? And the rich man ends up in a place of torment while Lazarus is carried away into Abraham's bosom where he enjoys peace and comfort for eternity. The rich man realizes that his state is fixed, that he can't leave there, that there's no relief, and so he begs for Abraham to send Lazarus to tell his brothers so that they don't end up in the same place. And Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham replies, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And that, my friends, is the key verse in understanding this story slash parable. That's the key. Who is Abraham? Well, he is the patriarch of the Jewish people. So could it be that Lazarus represents God's people who will eventually be gathered to their father and enjoy rest and prosperity because of the atoning work of his seed, Jesus Christ? And could it be that the rich man represents the stubborn, hard-hearted Pharisees who refuse to see people the way that God sees them and therefore they paid the ultimate price? My point is there's so much more here than meets the eye when we only focus on the afterlife. Could it be an account of what happens to a person when they die? Perhaps. But I think it's a little shaky to surmise that every single one of us are going to rest in Abraham's bosom after death. All of that being said, the biblical evidence is not on where you go when you die. The biblical evidence, the biblical emphasis is on resurrection. Now, that's not to say that there's not a scriptural basis for the answer to the question, where do we go when we die? Ecclesiastes 12, 7, for instance, Solomon talks about how the body will return to the dust from which it came and the spirit will go and be with God. You know, we had uh, Larry read from Philippians chapter 1, 21 and following a while ago. Let me remind you of what that says. Paul writes, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul believed that upon death, he would go and be with Jesus. And where is Jesus? Well, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So can we confidently say that when we die, we'll go to be with Jesus? Perhaps. But again, the biblical emphasis isn't about where we go when we die. The biblical emphasis and the hope of Scripture is in resurrection. 
You know, at funerals, I will hear people say sometimes, well, you know, I know the deceased is up in heaven. They're playing cards right now. They're fishing and hunting all day or they're partying. And, and I don't want to diminish anyone's thoughts about their loved one that has gone on, especially during a time of grieving and mourning. And a lot of that is really inconsequential anyway. But we do have to admit that it's all more fantasy than it is anything that we can truly point to in Scripture and say that's it. You know, where we have a lack of information, we fill in the gaps, right? And we have to admit that there's a lot of speculation that goes on about death and where we go when we die. It's unseen and it's a mystery. And maybe that's on purpose. Maybe it was designed that way because God knew that the emphasis shouldn't be on that anyway. Our hope is not just in what happens when we die. Our hope is what happens when Jesus returns. You know, the very first funeral I ever preached, ever, was for a gentleman I had never met. And that's always difficult. It's always difficult to preach a sermon uh, at a funeral for someone that you've never met. Not only that, he was not a Christian, which makes it doubly hard. It, you know, funerals are, are a time of, of grieving and mourning, but it's made so much easier if you know that the person that has passed on was a Christian. So, didn't know the person, they weren't a Christian, and not only that, even their own family, even this guy's own family admitted that he was quite a bit of a rounder, that he wasn't a good guy, that he didn't have a lot of moral conviction to him. And so, here I am preaching my first sermon for a guy I didn't know who wasn't a Christian and a guy that uh, you really struggled to come up with any nice things to say about. And so, I did my best, and after the funeral, just as they're about to lower the casket into the ground, the daughter climbs up on it, and begins wailing bitterly, beating her fists against the casket. It was a sad display, and the only thing that I could think was, that's what hopelessness looks like. Because you and I know that this life is going somewhere. You and I know that this life doesn't end in a casket in the ground. That this isn't as good as it gets. That there is hope from every hospital, every cemetery, every hospice ward, every, every, every nursing home, because the tomb of Jesus was found empty, so too will ours one day. You know, I mentioned how we often fill in the gaps when we don't have the information. We speculate and we fantasize, and like I said, it's really of no consequence usually. But one thing that, that does make me sit up in my seat and kind of say, hold on, is when, is when you hear, well, they've got their reward now. Now they've got that new body, and I think, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, not so fast, because Paul had this to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning of verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked, for indeed while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by the life. And now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. So Paul says, when we die, we are a naked spirit, which is not a bad thing. It's just not the goal. The goal is not to be a naked spirit that lives above the clouds, floats around playing a harp. No, the goal is is to be clothed with this new body. 
when the mortal will have put on immortality, when the perishable will have put on the imperishable. Our hope is in our spirit and body being reunited and redeemed. That's our hope. Our hope is not in being that disembodied spirit, but rather our hope is to be resurrected. Henry Wadsworth uh, Longfellow wrote a poem one time. I'd like to share a couple of stanzas with you. He says, I like that ancient Saxon phrase which calls the burial ground God's acre. It is just. It consecrates each grave within its walls and breathes a benison o'er the sleeping dust. With thy rude plowshare, death, turn up the sod and spread the furrow of the seed we sow. This is the field and acre of our God. This is the place where human harvests grow. I like that last line. Every cemetery where Christians are buried is God's acre. It's the place where human harvests grow. Any cemetery where Christians are has human harvest growing there. There's nothing dead about it. It may be an ominous and sad place, but it doesn't represent the end. We see the grave markers, we see the flowers, we see the hearse, and it's easy for us to think that death is winning. But nothing could be further from the truth. The the grave marker, the flowers, the hearse, they're, they're just a reminder that this is not the end. That while it may seem like a defeat, there is actual victory. Because we get out. We don't stay there. This is where human harvests grow. Death doesn't have the last word, and the cemetery cannot hold us. I saw an interesting sign the other day. I took a picture of it. Here it is. Yeah, the top sign says South Cemetery Road, and the bottom says Dead End. Isn't that really how our culture views death? I mean, that's a perfect uh, example of how our society views death. That you go to the cemetery, and that's it. It's a dead end. There's no getting out. It's kind of like the, the little boy that was riding around the truck with his dad, and they drive by a cemetery, and he sees the uh, fresh dirt from a, a grave that has just been dug, and he says, look, Dad, one of them got out. <laughs> we get out, right? What society believes about death is not true. While it may seem like death is winning on this side of eternity, it's not. Look with me at John chapter 11. You didn't think you were going to get out of here this morning in a sermon on resurrection without looking at the resurrection of Lazarus, did you? John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, it says, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now skip down to verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you, Lord? Where were you when I prayed? Why didn't you do something? We've all asked that question, right? We all sympathize with Mary and Martha. We've all been in in their sandals. We, we, We know about asking God and not receiving the answer that we wanted, wondering where God is in the midst of of tragedy and even death. Now look at verses 33 and 39. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, 
And the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. The King James Version says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. There will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. How comforting would it be? To be standing at the tomb of your dead loved one and you look over and you see Jesus weeping. That as you cry, you look over and you see the Lord crying with you. Because that's what happens every time you stand at an open grave for your loved one. Jesus is there. He is weeping with you. Why did Jesus weep here? It's a question that's often asked. Why did Jesus weep? Some people say because he knew he was going to have to bring Lazarus back. You know, and he was in comfort in paradise. I think the real reason that Jesus wept here is because he saw what sin does. He saw what the fall of man does. It brought death into the world. It brought, it brought stink and stench. He hurt for his loved ones and the people that had to experience this. You know, we, we do this in death. We, we wonder where, where Jesus was. We wonder why God didn't answer our prayer. We mourn and Mary and Martha they wondered the same thing. They wondered where Jesus was. Why didn't he come when they summoned him? They thought that death had won, that Jesus had failed them. Their hope was dead. Martha speaks partly with reproach and partly exposes her faith through her heart and her lips when she says, why didn't you come when you got the message? And we wondered the same thing, right? Lord, why didn't you answer my prayer when I prayed it? And Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. And Martha gives a very theological response. She knew her theology. She knew her orthodoxy. She knew about the Jewish belief in a general resurrection on the last day. But picture Jesus taking Martha's chin and gently lifting it so that she is looking him in the eye. And imagine Jesus saying, no, Martha, you don't understand. I'm going to raise him now. Yes, he will, he will be raised in the last day, but I'm about to do something spectacular. I'm about to raise him from the dead now. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying, I specialize in resurrections. Jesus isn't saying, I can do resurrections. He's saying, I am the resurrection. I am this, not I do this. It is who I am. It is my identity. Jesus gently comforts Martha, not with an explanation, but with a person, with himself. And his words are words that we need to take to heart. Many moons ago, Vice President George Bush attended the funeral of Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. And just before Brezhnev's casket was closed, his widow performed an act of profound civil disobedience. She made the sign of the cross on her dead husband's chest. This man, who was behind the secular, atheistic view and mentality, the one 
who removed God from the public square before being laid in the tomb, his wife was hoping it wasn't true. His wife hoped against all hope that he was wrong and that there would be grace to cover him. She put her hope in Jesus and a cross in that moment. I know it's hard to believe. I know it's sometimes hard to have faith when you're sitting in the nursing home looking your spouse in the eye and they don't even know who you are. I know it's difficult to keep moving forward when your marriage is in the toilet. I know it's hard to keep pressing on when you're holding your loved one's hand as their heart pumps for the last time. I know it's easy to blame God. I know it's easy to ask, you know, where were you, God? I had somebody I was counseling with one time, and they were asking those questions, you know, where was God in all this? Why God? And I said, have you asked God? They said, well, you can't do that. I said, sure you can. He can handle it. He's not fragile. David did. We see it in Scripture over and over again. Why, God? Why did this have to happen? And, and, and maybe you don't get the answer that you want. But I understand it's hard. It's hard to keep faith. It's hard to keep pressing on. It's hard to believe. But don't miss what Martha says in verses 21 and 22. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Even now, did you catch that? Even now when hope is gone, even now when it feels like death is winning, even now when you struggle to believe, even now he is sitting in the grave and has been there for four days and it stinketh, even now I know you can do something. Martha says, even now I know you can change the circumstances if you want to. I know that you can do something. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus can work in the middle of your mess? Do you believe that God can do something? As much as you would like, it's probably not going to be a physical resurrection like it was with Lazarus. However, even now, something can be done. In fact, even now, Jesus has done something. And is continuing to do something that changes the game completely. And gives us hope in a fallen world. Look at, look at it again. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I ask you, do you believe this? I mean, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you never die. Do you believe this? I'll tell you what, let me, let me ask you this question. What do all of these things have in common? Any guesses? They're all disposable, right? And you say, well, wait a minute, Chris. Human beings aren't disposable. Well, we think that. We teach that even. I mean, how many times have you heard it? The body is just a vehicle for the spirit. We have a body, but we are a spirit. You've heard those things. And to that, I would say fake news. Because Scripture does not present the body and the spirit in that way. The Bible does not present a false dichotomy between the body, which is just a shell and really has no use, and the spirit, which is the really important part of you. 
The Bible doesn't do that. In fact, all that God created is important, including the body. Notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. He says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Your body is not just a coating or a shell for your spirit. Your body is going to be redeemed. If you back up in Romans 6, you find Paul talking about how the inner man is renewed at baptism. There is an inner resurrection that occurs at baptism. However, the outer man remains weaponized for sin. Which is why in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about this internal struggle, this civil war that goes on, this tug of war that goes on inside of him. The very thing that I want to do is that which I don't do, and the very thing I don't want to do is that which I do. You remember all that? That's because the inner man has been renewed, but the outer man has it. But someday, someday, the Holy Spirit is going to unite them both. Someday, because of the work that is within you, that outer man will match the inner man. Both will be redeemed and no longer be in conflict. You go back to verse 11 of Romans 8, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. There will come a day when God will redeem the outer man. He's going to buy that body back. He is going to rescue it from sin and destruction. What's it going to look like? I don't know. And you don't know. Hopefully I'll have a little more hair, but we don't know. And Paul doesn't seem to think that that's a big deal that you do know. Just that you know that resurrection is the goal in all this. That that's what we look forward to, right? That it's about resurrection. You see, the switch has been flipped. And so we wait. We wait for the day when the mortal will put on immortality. And while we wait, God has given us snapshots. He's given us glimpses of what's to come. That's what the story of Lazarus is all about. It's foreshadowing. To when Jesus was laid in the tomb and three days later he walked out of it. And that's a snapshot of exactly what's going to happen with us someday. Chris, you're telling me that my spirit's going to be reunited with my body and I'm going to walk out of the tomb like Jesus did? That's exactly what I'm saying. Because it's biblical. That's what it teaches. You're not going to be some disembodied spirit floating around playing a harp. We walk out of the tomb. Just like Jesus did. The the tomb couldn't hold Jesus. It can't hold us either. You know, this this is a day I put a lot of emphasis on. I put a lot of emphasis on every time I get to preach. And I do it to myself. I, I get worked up. I, I, I stress myself out sometimes because I want to be the most useful tool for God that I can possibly be. And I want Him to use me and I want to get out of the way. And I want to be as effective as I possibly can be. And so my prayer is constantly, God, use me. Use me. And you know, Every Sunday, I take this this role very seriously, but this is a day that I really focus on because I know that while we have great crowds every Sunday, this is going to be a day where we have a huge crowd, and within that crowd, there are going to be some people who have never darkened the doors of a church building. I also know that among the crowd, there's going to be some people, perhaps, that only come to church every once in a while, maybe a few days a year, and this day is one of them. 
And I don't ever want to shame or guilt people who decided to come to church. I don't want to shame or guilt them into coming more. I want to use this opportunity to say thank you for being here. And I want to redeem this opportunity and see it as a chance to hopefully hit you in the heart. And that perhaps when you leave here, you're different. Hopefully you're inspired to to do something different with your life. You know, I feel like we always have to apologize for saying Happy Easter, you know. We always have to, you know, yes, it's Easter, but, you know, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. I hope you celebrate it every day because it means everything. Other than that, it doesn't mean a whole lot. The resurrection is central to everything you are, everything you believe. It is the linchpin for everything we are as Christians. So we celebrate it every day, right? But if the world is going to stop and pause for just a little while and acknowledge resurrection, then I'm going to do that as well. I'm going to redeem that opportunity. Because of all the talk about Easter not being biblical or whatever, the resurrection happened, folks. It happened. I can point to the Bible and show you. And if you don't believe it happened, then it's no use for you being here. So, I want to redeem this day, and I want to have an opportunity to hopefully hit you in the heart. So what do you, what do you say? That's where the stress comes in on my part. What do you say? When you only have one bullet in the chamber, you better make sure that you hit your target, right? So what do I say? I think the message that I want you to leave here today with is simple. If you are a child of God, you get out. You get out. You don't stay in the cemetery. You know, we talk about people having eternal life and we only focus on the heaven part. No, everybody has eternal life. Every single person. Will you spend it with God for eternity or away from Him for eternity? When we talk about the importance of this day, of the resurrection, of this theme, I think perhaps the most important piece of Scripture in all the Bible, if we could narrow it down, is this one. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. This verse means everything for us. Hopefully it means everything for you. And hopefully you live in response to resurrection. Because the tomb was found empty, we are filled. How can we help you this morning? Are you hurting? Do you need prayer? Are you ready to take the next step in faith? Are you ready to study the Bible with someone? Are you ready to learn what it means to be a disciple? Luke's going to lead us in a song, and I hope that if you don't answer the invitation this morning, that you'll come up and talk to me or one of the elders and let us help you in some way. Do not leave here today and go about your life with no change. Live in response to eternity. Live a resurrected life. Come as we stand and as we sing.